Good morning, uh, gentlemen. Good to see you. Bright and early. Not so bright and early. Revelation chapter 3, we come to verse 14. This is the last of the seven churches. And uh, you know there have been some churches that the Lord has specially commended. Uh, some that are doing fairly well but have some problems. Some that are struggling and some that are in pretty rough shape. This is one of those. It is in rough shape. In fact, there's a, there is a uh, noun called Laodiceanism. And the definition of that word is to be found in this text. It's quite famous. And I can't think of any of these churches that we've studied that are better uh, parallels of the 21st century Western church than this one right here. So uh, let us look at it and study it together here for a few moments. Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen. That's not Amen Bible study, guys. That's uh, Amen, so be it. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, we're looking at Christ's Word to the church, neither hot nor cold in this case. The church's name, Laodicea. Christ reveals His names. We've seen that those are largely taken from uh, Revelation chapter 1, that description of Christ that is there. In this case, it's the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. There's no commendation in this case, as in one other case we studied. The critique is this. They're neither hot nor cold. And they say they're rich, but they're actually poor. The instruction is, buy from me. Come get what you need from me. Don't think that you've already got it. And then there's a warning. And you you notice in this case, they're a little bit out of order. Uh, But this is the order we've been using in most cases. In this case, The warning came first and then the instruction. The warning is, I'm about to spit you out. Yikes. Then the exhortation is that uh, I love those I rebuke. Be earnest and repent. He he says he stands at the door and knocks. And he promises that to uh, whomever comes, overcomes, uh, he will sit on the throne with him. And then he gives us that final exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the general outline that we're working with. Well, I want us to look at this text in 
three categories. And first of all, in verses 14 through 16, I want you to notice this, that the Lord loathes lukewarmness. He loathes lukewarmness. And we're going to examine for a few minutes why that is. First of all, He is not lukewarm. Look at that first verse, and you see these descriptors of Jesus Christ. If you look at Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's doing, He's not just kind of laid back and indifferent about it. Here He says, I'm the Amen. That, and Amen just means yes or so be it. And uh, we know that Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, tell, the Apostle Paul tells us there that all the promises of God find their Amen, their yes in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is there amening every promise God ever made, bringing those promises to you without one exception. He never fails in one promise. He's not cool about it. He's not indifferent about it. He's not lackadaisical about it. He's the amen. And then we find that He is the faithful and true witness. He's faithful to what He has seen of His Father. He's faithful to His Father and faithful to you. And He's true in His witness. He tells you about you. He tells you about God. And He tells you how to get there. And He's, he's not dispassionate about it. He's, it's not arm's length for Him. It's, in, it's endemic to His very being. And He cares a lot about it. And that being the case, His being a true and faithful witness, when He makes the statements He's about to make to us uh, in our churches, just as He did to Laodicea, uh, we're well advised to listen to Him because He's telling the truth. And one of the difficulties for guys always is to get criticism, especially if it's from our wives. Uh, as, as one of my elder friends told me, he was praying one day, Lord, please teach me about this, but don't use Suzanne. <laughs> None of us likes to be corrected. We don't even like to be told which way to go down the road, even if we're going the wrong way on one-way traffic. I've seen that happen before. You know, don't, don't want to be advised. Just go our own way. We don't want correction. And we don't even like it from the Lord. It's part of the male ego. I don't know. Testosterone does some strange things to us. But we don't like to be told anything. But here we have the ruler of God's creation. He's the potentate. You can't get any higher than this. And he has some things he has to say to his church. And his church would be well advised to listen because he's telling the truth. And the emperor ain't got no clothes. And the emperor is better off if he knows he doesn't have any clothes. And uh, the, although the, nobody will tell the emperor except for the faithful and true witness. He's the ruler of God's creation. So the first thing is we see about Jesus Christ Himself. One reason that He loathes lukewarmness is that it is the opposite of Himself. He is not lukewarm. So to be a lukewarm Christian, which means to be a lukewarm follower of Jesus Christ, is an oxymoron. Because Jesus Christ is not lukewarm. He never was. Can you find one place in the Scriptures where Jesus Christ said, Ah, whatever. Never. So he is passionate, white hot on the inside. So if you're going to follow him, that's the way it's going to be with you. Secondly, lukewarm is neither hot nor cold. And that's one reason that he loathes it. Because it, it seems to be neither fish nor fowl. See what he says in verse 15. I know your deeds. He says, I know about you. Uh, you don't need to tell me about yourselves. I'm watching and I know your hearts. And I know that you are neither hot. I, I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. That's a remarkable statement. The Lord is saying that He prefers for us to be one or the other instead of kind of in between. 
And this is reflective of the church today. That's a a whatever generation. It's not particularly excited. You can go to almost any of our churches. And if you sit in a situation uh, in a sanctuary where you can just look around and just count up the number of people who are singing the hymns. Our worship is whatever. You know, if you've got a voice, fine. If you like to sing, fine. If you like to pray, fine. I'm, I'm going there to be fed. I'm going there to get what I want. And what's our normal attitude when we come out of church? Oh, was the music very good? Oh, did, did the sermon really strike home? Uh, were people nice to me? I mean, we judge everything based upon how it affected me. And gentlemen, something about worship that ought to be really clear. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about your pleasure. It's about His pleasure. So when you leave your worship time, whether with your family or small group or church, you can ask this question. Did we please Him? Did He get something out of this? Was He glorified by it? That's the question in worship, not how you felt about it. We are so self-absorbed, it's unbelievable. This culture is so sentimental, so selfish, so soft, so apathetic that it's, it's, it's distasteful to the Lord. And He loathes it because it's neither one nor the other. Now, the descriptors that are used here for hot and cold are very hot and frozen. So he's talking about two dynamics on either end of the spectrum, white hot and cold frozen. And he says, you're neither one of those. You're in between, lukewarm. It's very interesting. In Laodicea, uh, not too far away, in fact, just just across from them a few miles, uh, was a waterfall. And it came from a hot spring. And there, there was hot water coming out of that hot spring. And then not too far away were the cold waters of, of a spring-fed uh, river. And then they, in Laodicea, they came together. And it was kind of lukewarm. And so the water was not all that attractive. It was kind of murky. And so they, they know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about lukewarm. He says, you're just like that water in the river right next to Laodicea. And so the Lord Jesus is saying that you're neither one. You're neither on fire or you're cold. And what Jesus says to this church is very interesting. He said, I'd rather you be cold frozen than lukewarm. I'd rather deal with people who've never heard the gospel and who don't care at this point in their lives than those who have heard the gospel and are going through the motions and don't care. He prefers someone who is stone cold Uh, in terms of their spiritual life as opposed to someone who's going through the motions and faking it. This is indeed a deep disease uh, in our own uh, culture, church culture. And we find furthermore in verse 16, lukewarm actually makes him sick. That's the analogy he's using. He gets nauseous, makes him throw up. So when he takes us in as lukewarm Christians who are neither hot nor cold, it makes him sick. You know, uh, I like to drink tea. This is hot. <laughs> and that's the reason I drink it. Sometimes that thing's sitting there, and it'll be there for an hour, and by the time this thing's over, it'll be lukewarm. And I don't drink it. Throw it out. Who likes lukewarm tea? I like, I like iced tea, and I like real hot tea. I don't like luke, lukewarm tea. So I, I turn from it. But it doesn't disgust me. It doesn't make me sick. But what Jesus is saying, it actually makes him sick. And he hates it. He despises it. He uses very strong language here. He's disgusted by it. Now think why. We've already seen that his character is not that way, so it's the contrary of his character. But think of it another way. 
Uh, one of you told me that you were coaching a third grade basketball team this, this fall. And what you told me was, first thing you're going to teach them was the doctrine of hustle. <laughs> and here's how it goes. When coach says go do something, you don't walk, you don't trot, you run. So if I say, he says little third graders, if I say, boys, go get that basketball over there, you're to run, go get the basketball. <laughs> now why? You all know the answer. Because when there's a little ball dribbling on the floor, a loose ball, you don't just trot for it. You don't just reach down for it. I hope you get it. You die for it. Why? Because winning is important, so says the coach. Now, philosophers have a hard time being basketball players because you ask too many questions. Like, what difference does it make if we win? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you really think about it, what difference does it make? But the reason for athletics being this way is because there are some things that do make a difference. And athleticism is analogous to warfare. And when you get in warfare, it makes a difference. When you get in the emergency room, it makes a difference. And those of you who are physicians, and if you're in the ER or the OR, and you say to the nurse, I need a scalpel, and she says, oh, I'm a little sleepy this morning. Let me just take a little nap, and I'll get to it. There's going to be uh, some words coming out of your mouth to snap that OR or that ER in shape. And people are going to move, stab. They're going to respond. And there's going to be a sense of urgency about what you're doing. Why? Because that does matter. Somebody's life is on the line. And you are there to defend life and to treat life and to care about life. And you're going to train everybody in your operation that life matters and that patients matter, right? Same thing in business. If you're going to be successful in business, you better understand real early that the customer may not always be right, but he is a customer. He's a client. And you're going, to, you're going to treat him or her with respect. And you're going to serve them. And you're going to make them feel good because they walked in your door. And everybody in your system and your organization is going to understand that. And there's going to be a sense of urgency about it. And nobody's going to loaf about that principle. That's the principle of hustle. So that's the reason that basketball matters. Because, as we know, the athletic field is a training field for life. And I assure you that in Fallujah, it matters. If people are white-hot passionate about doing exactly what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, and they know it's urgent, and they know that the guy standing next to them depends upon their responsibility. Now, if those things are true, and they are, what Jesus Christ cares about is even more important than your being on the operating table, or your being in Fallujah, or your being in business. What He cares about is you're getting to heaven safely. And what He cares about is you're having fellowship with the living God. What he's dealing with is far more important. And so therefore he's saying we're going to get one thing straight. There's going to be a spirit of hustle around here. And so when you come into worship, there's going to be singing. And we're not going to loaf about it because we're dealing with something urgent. It's called the glory of God. And when it comes to treating your neighbor with justice and being fair and honest in your business, we're going to have a spirit of hustle about that. We're going to get on it not tomorrow. We're not going to wait till next week to get it straightened out. We're going to straighten it out today. Because why? Because the glory of God is at stake. And when it has to do with inviting someone to know Christ or to be in your church, we're not going to be slow about that. We're not going to wait till we feel comfortable with it. You wouldn't say that to the man who's over you in the service. We're going to get about it right now because it's urgent and it's important. And you guys, says the Lord to this church in Laodicea, are hanging back and acting as though you've got another day. You'll get around to it when you want to. And that's contrary to the urgency of the issues we deal with in the church. It's amazing to me how guys can be very urgent about where their income is going to come from next week. 
and not so urgent about where someone's eternal life is going to be spent. It's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. You've got second things first and first things second. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying to the church. I know your deeds. And you're, you're a whatever generation. And you're indifferent. And you're apathetic. And apathy is a grave sin against God when it is apathy about God or the things of God. It's a grave sin. And you can see that Jesus Christ is completely disgusted with it. He hates lukewarmness. Do we get this? He hates it. More than anything you can imagine that you hate. He hates that. So, that's the first point. You get that clearly in those three verses. Then, secondly, notice the good news of all this. The Lord hates lukewarmness, but He loves the lukewarm. Don't ask me how He does this. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to learn. I really am. I mean, there's some things I hate, and I have a hard time loving the people who do them. But Jesus Christ does. And the people make fun of this distinction. That, you know, they say, oh, if you say God loves, hates the sin and loves the sinner, oh, no, He doesn't really hate the sin, sinner too. We know that. It's impossible. Or for you to say you hate the sin, love the sinner, that's impossible. That's just an excuse and a loophole. No, it's a real distinction. And the reason it's real is because of what Jesus does. And if Jesus does it, that's the way we're supposed to be. So let's get on with it. He loves those who are perpetrating what He despises. And He loves them as much as He despises what they do. In fact, I think you could even say He loves them more than He despises what they do. I'm not sure you can say that. But it sure does look like it when you see how He deals with us. First thing He does, He diagnoses our problem. Look at verse 17. We get a real clear diagnosis from Dr. Jesus here. He says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize what you really are, that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. There's your diagnosis. The diagnosis is that you say you're one thing, but you're really the other. Where does this come from? It comes from wealth. Look at this series. We have wealth. We say we're rich. That leads to a complacency, a self-satisfaction, which leads to an indifference about the things that are really important. It just lulls us to sleep. And that leads to a hypocrisy, which is faking it. All right? That's kind of the pattern. Now, what you need to know about Laodicea, not only did it have this uh, river with mixed temperatures of water and it made it kind of murky and so on, Laodicea, of all the seven churches, was clearly the wealthiest of all these cities. They were at the crossroads of three major trafficking areas. And the mercantile banking there was very, very well known. There was a lot of gold in that city. There was a lot of uh, commerce in that city. People were very wealthy. In fact, they were so wealthy that when the famous earthquake of 60 A.D. took place, the Laodiceans got no help from Rome. And the philosophers wrote about it, about these rich Laodiceans that didn't even accept government help. I mean, can you imagine that uh, Memphis is hit with straight-line winds of 100 miles per hour and everything's devastated and so we get federal disaster help offered to us. We say, ah, don't bother. We can handle it. Have you ever seen anybody in this country to deny disaster help when a hurricane or tornado hits? No, everybody takes it. We're glad to have it. The Laodiceans had so much money in the bank, they said, ah, just forget it. You know, we're going to build this city a lot better than you'd rebuild it anyway. They were very, very wealthy people. They also had uh, 
famous black sheep, uh, and they, they had this shiny black clothing that was very well known, the Laodicean clothing, that was exquisite, it was beautiful. And uh, so they, they were very well off. They also had a medical school there that was well known in the, in the ancient world, and it was believed that they had developed, a, there was a Phrygian power, powder that was used as salve on the eyes. And uh, they had a, a famous medical school there, and they were even devising nice medicines and salves for the rest of the world. So this was a prosperous city. And what Jesus is saying to them, look, great, it's wonderful. You know, wealth is a gift of God. But look what it's doing to you. You're letting your wealth absolutely put you to sleep spiritually. And let me say something. These Laodiceans were not nearly as wealthy as any of you are. So whatever wealth they had can't be compared to the wealth of Memphis, Tennessee. And here's what Jesus is saying to the church. Your wealth is putting you to sleep. You, you acquire wealth and you want more of it. Not too long ago, uh, I believe it was 1997, PBS had a thing that they put on. It was uh, to describe a disease. And the disease was affluenza. <laughs> you know, we've got all these... We're, we're, we're parceling out our influenza shots now. You know, if you got an influenza shot, let me just say to you, you're old. <laughs> you're called, you're called at risk. You know, you got, a, you got a flu shot. You got to wonder about yourself. You know, but we got these shots. You know, they're very precious. You know, to keep people from getting the flu. And listen, if you need one, get it, please. We like our ameners. We like to have you here. The flu can be a pretty tough customer. But influenza is worse than influenza. Let, let me give you the description that a woman named uh, Anne Sukhanoff gave to affluenza in this PBS commentary. She said, Affluenza is an array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. That's the disease. She goes on to say, It is an unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Does this not describe us? I was talking to a guy one time. I was at a, a party somewhere. I don't know where it was. Well, actually, I do know where it was. I won't say. Uh, and uh, <laughs> could embarrass someone. Um, but a guy came up to me that I thought I recognized as a member of our church. And, uh, in fact, uh, he was. The reason I wasn't sure about him, uh, although I don't know all the names of the members of our church who do attend church sometimes, but... But this guy didn't. But we struck up a conversation. He hadn't been in church in years. And I said to him, well, Al, how are you doing? He said, he said, preacher, I'm doing so good, I just can hardly stand it. I said, well, good. Tell me about it. He said, you know, uh, I said, you know, I'm really interested because, you know, I hadn't seen you in church, and I'm really, of course, interested in your spiritual life. He said, preacher, let me tell you something. My tennis game is going great. And he said, did you see that young thing walking around this house? That's my wife. And he said, we're having a great time. We're taking vacations. I'm in great health. He said, I don't need church. Now, the only difference between Al and a lot of folks is Al was honest. And that's exactly what happens to you when you've got a great-looking wife, your sex life is good, your golf game is good, your income is good, business is up. You don't need a dang thing. That's the way you feel inside. And that's the diagnosis that Jesus Christ is bringing. That's what your Memphis wealth has done to you, if you're not very, very careful. And we're going to see their correctives for this. 
But if this goes unrestrained, that's what happens to you. You don't need anything. You don't need Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He's hearing from the church. And so what do we do? We spend our time <laughs> we spend our time doing things like making the monster thick burger. Did you see the thing on TV the other day? <laughs> this hamburger as big as that table. This thing is huge. They say it contains all that you ever need in every day in every daily requirement for food is in this one hamburger at Burger King. Has fourteen hundred and seventy calories and two hundred and seventy fat grams. Can you imagine that thing? There was a guy eating that thing on the news the other night. He ate and he said, Man, that's some burger. <laughs> and the guy was huge too. That's what we're good at. Monster thick burgers. Let's see. Who can be most grotesque in satisfying the most carnal base needs of this fat society with? That's what we're in. We're fat. And we're apathetic and we're soft. And I speak from personal experience. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying. This is what's happened to you. That's your diagnosis. Wealth, unrestrained wealth, unexamined wealth has led to a complacency and indifference that has led to hypocrisy. That means you don't really down deep have much fear of anything about your own satisfaction or your own welfare. You're being lulled to sleep, but you're going to go through the motions. Now, some don't care and don't give a rip, and they say it right up front, and they're stone cold. That's one thing. But there are a lot of people who down deep inside are very indifferent about this stuff, but who go through the motions because they do care about what other people think of them. And so they're called hypocrites. And what is hypocrisy? Let's take a look at it just a minute. Hypocrisy is simply pretending to be what one is not. Hypocrisy is pretension. And so Jesus is saying, you say you're rich, but you're poor. You say you're clothed. The emperor has no clothes, he says. And he's the one who's calling your hand on it. You say that you can see beautifully. You're blind. You say you're happy. You're miserable. And he knows because he's a faithful and true witness. And he, that's called hypocrisy when we're saying one thing about ourselves and pretending that means but, but, but we're actually not. So we're pretending to be what, what we are not. Now what I'd like to do for a few minutes is compare three things. I'd like for us to compare, compare consistent belief and consistent unbelief with hypocrisy. Okay? Now let's just look at some traits of the consistent believer the consistent unbeliever, and the hypocrite. First of all, who has much knowledge? Well, both the consistent believer and the consistent unbeliever can have great knowledge. I remember one time going in to speak with uh, the local abortionist just to encourage him to consider turning his life around and saving the lives of some of our children in town instead of taking their lives in the abortion clinic. And I went in to talk with him. And while we were talking, he was kind of scribbling on a legal pad. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm trying to remember whether it was uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he said, who was that third tribe that was over on the east side of the Jordan River? Now, how many of you even knew that Manasseh and Ephraim were on the east side of the river? Here's a guy who knew all 12 tribes of Israel, and he quoted many, many verses. He was very knowledgeable about the facts of the Bible. Unbelievers uh, can be very knowledgeable. What about excitement? Well, uh, usually a consistent unbeliever is not going to be excited about Jesus. They're rather bored and put off by Jesus. 
What about confessing sin? Well, an unbeliever doesn't confess sin. A believer does. What about professing faith? No, the consistent unbeliever doesn't profess faith. What about being under conviction? No, the unbeliever doesn't come under the conviction of the Spirit. What about trembling at God's Word? Well, that does happen sometimes. You have these little moments when they might get just a little worried, but then they quickly get out into traffic so they can forget about it. How about being sorry for sin? No, not particularly. The consistent unbeliever is not sorry for his sin. What about outwardly reformed? Well, maybe in some ways, but not according to the Scriptures. The consistent unbeliever wouldn't be. The believer is. The believer would tithe. Right, boys? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's take a vote here today. I just want to like to check that out. Yeah. yeah. Make a lot of money today. Just be sure and tithe that. Yeah. Uh, the unbeliever is not going to bother with that. How about being a martyr? Well, even the believer doesn't like to do that. The consistent unbeliever is certainly not going to. What about a broken and contrite heart? Certainly not for the unbeliever. A submission to the gospel? No, forget that. Love God wholeheartedly? No, I'm not going to do that if I'm an unbeliever. Now, what about the hypocrite? This is where it gets interesting. How about much knowledge? Yeah, the hypocrite can certainly have much knowledge. No doubt about that. What about excitement? Do you remember Matthew 13 talking about the four soils? And one of the soils, they spring up with joy. And then the sun shines on them, they wither. That's the hypocrite. So he has initial excitement oftentimes. What about confessing sin? You'll find that with King Saul. He'll confess certain things, uh, but he's a hypocrite, King Saul. What about professing faith? Yes, as a matter of fact, hypocrites do profess faith. Jesus says the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They'll call Jesus Christ the Lord. And then he'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. And what about coming under conviction? Absolutely. Uh, you have uh, Judas came under conviction. He was so convicted and so sorry for his sin that he went out and hung himself. That's being pretty sorry and pretty convicted. What about trembling at God's Word? Absolutely. Uh, King Agrippa can tremble at God's Word. How about outwardly reformed? Yes, the hypocrite definitely outwardly reforms. Uh, he will try to conform uh, outwardly to impress other people, of course, just like the Pharisees did. What about tithing? Yes, the Pharisees tithe their mint, dill, and cumin. They tithe their garden herbs, Jesus said. So outwardly, they are way ahead of some, where some of the consistent believers are. Well, inconsistent believers. But where real believers often uh, will fall short of what God wants them to do with their finances, a true hypocrite, that's a contradiction in terms, a, a strong hypocrite will even tithe. What about being a martyr? Think about it. Paul says, even if I give my body to be burned in the flames and have not love, I am nothing. So, at least theoretically, it's possible that someone would give themselves up even to the flames and not really love God. Now, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? You've got a, a hypocrite who can look an awful lot like a believer. What about a broken and contrite heart? Gentlemen, there are some things the hypocrite cannot deceitfully duplicate. Cannot counterfeit a broken and contrite heart. What about submission to the gospel? No, the problem with the hypocrite, they never really do submit to the gospel. What about loving God wholeheartedly? No, you can't fake love from the heart. And Jesus sees the heart. So He is talking to people who are absolutely outstanding hypocrites. I mean, they're, they're good at this. 
They can do all that stuff. And they can impress each other. They can impress the preacher and the bishops and everybody else. But Jesus said, I'm the faithful and true witness. Let me tell you what really makes me sick is when people are going through the motions. Why does this nauseate him so much? It's because it's a, it is a contradiction not just to who, who he is as the amen and the true and faithful witness and the ruler of God's creation. It's a contradiction of what the gospel means. This is the whole point. If the gospel is as valuable as Jesus Christ knows it is, then we see it as valuable as it is, and it has life-transforming power in our lives. When we don't really think the gospel is that valuable, then we look around and see what everybody else is doing. We try to get in line with them so that we won't be an outrageous, uh, uh, appearing hypocrite, and we, we just kind of go with the flow. But in our hearts, we're not really grateful for it, and we don't value the gospel. It has not had that effect upon us. So the real value of the gospel is being contradicted by the perceived value of the gospel in the heart of the hypocrite. And that's what makes Jesus Christ throw up. Because He loves the gospel. He gave His life for the gospel so that men might be free. And when He sees it having the opposite effect on them and hardening their hearts into hypocritical hearts, it makes them sick. So, I don't know about you, but that's very convicting to me. Because I have my own hypocrisies. Every preacher does, I suppose. And the more you do things up front, the more the danger is. If you're an elder or a deacon or a trustee or, or some other thing, a deacon in your Baptist church or whatever it is, you're a Sunday school teacher or a leader or you, you're outspoken in your workplace, which you should be, the more you do that kind of thing, the more the danger is for hypocrisy. So, of all people, we ought to be very concerned. What does he do? First of all, diagnosis. And then secondly, he counsels. And notice the wording here in verse 18. It doesn't say, I'm going to whack you. It doesn't say, I'm going to command you. Just very graciously, he says, I counsel you. And what's he counseling us to do? Here's a really good counselor. Here's our, here's our therapist. Here's the one who's really going to listen to us and help us. He says, look, buy real things that will really help you. Buy gold refined in the fire. Buy gold that's proven. And what is this gold? Well, he doesn't say for sure, but there's a pretty good hint when you turn to First Peter and you see Peter using the same analogy. And he says, your faith, which is being tested, is like gold refined in the fire. So Jesus is saying, would you get real faith? Why don't you come and get that from me? That's real gold. That's real wealth. Why don't you come and buy it from me? Trade with someone who can give you something worthwhile instead of giving you all these phony products you're buying. And then he says, why don't you buy white clothes? They have their black clothes. He said, why don't you buy white clothes? Why? Because that will cover your shameful nakedness. What's your shameful nakedness? It's your sin against God. And you have no cover for it. And you're just out there naked, being a sinner against Him. What protection do you have? Well, you need, you're going to enter the wedding feast of the Lamb. You've got to have clothing. You've got to have proper clothing. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. Come buy it from me. This white clothing that will cover you. And what is this covering? It's the righteousness from God that you need. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, everybody's trying to get righteousness. That is, everybody's trying to get clothing. They're out there buying it. And they're trying to get it by performing. And he says, you, nobody's going to get there that way. But there is a righteousness apart from the law which is revealed from God. Ah, clothing that's given to us. And Jesus is saying, come get that clothing, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he says, get real sad. You think in your med school, your university, you got the really hot stuff. They said, let me tell you, you're still blind. 
You may physically, your eyes may be more comfortable, but the fact is, spiritually, you can't see a blooming thing. He said, come to me. I'll give you a real salve that will take away your blindness and you will see. You'll have enlightenment. You'll understand things. And I know this from personal experience. I remember trying to figure out the world. You know, I, I walked in uh, over to the club the other day and I came amongst some of you, you older guys, you know. You've been meeting there for 20 years. And I walked up and said, man, this looks like a conspiratorial group if I ever saw one in my life. You know, about eight guys there just talking, you know, over in the corner of the club. And uh, I said, what you all doing? And one, one of you said, figuring out the problems of the world. <laughs> I said, well, I want you to know you all have been making a big difference. <laughs> Look at this world that we're in. I hope you all figure it out. Well, you know, all of us do that. We're trying to figure out the problems of the world. Men love to do that. The fact of the matter is, until you put Christ right in the middle of this, you ain't going to figure it out. You won't diagnose it correctly, nor will you have the proper solution. You want unity in this world? Of course. And there are subsidiary solutions to unity. Sometimes it involves warfare and negotiating and compromising and all the rest. I'm all for that. But when it comes to ultimate unity and figuring out the problems of the world, you know the only way to do it is that everybody's going to have to bow the knee to the creator and potentate of this world. Until you bow the knee to the potentate, there ain't going to be no unity. The potentate's not going to allow it. How are you going to have unity when you're in rebellion against the one who's the ruler of God's creation? So the only way we're ever going to have unity is through spreading the gospel so that every knee will be bowed to the potentate. Now, there's figuring out the problems of the world. See, I'll save you a lot of time in your old age. So Jesus is simply saying, you need to have. You need to be able to see. And you can only get your personal life in line when you get the global in line. That's the reason men talk about the problems of the world. It's because I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do with my time and my money and my energy and my relationships until I figure the whole piece out. Lee Burns is sitting back there, and if you ask him about educating little boys, he'll tell you several things about their hands-on and all this kind of thing. But he, I asked him one day, I said, what's the distinction about training boys as opposed to training girls? And one thing I'll never forget, he said, you always start with the bottom line. I said, oh, that sounds just like me. My wife will tell you. I'm sitting there going, come on, come on. Bottom line. I'm trying to be patient. I'm listening to this long story. Where in the world is it going? Gentlemen, that starts at the age of two. And men want the bottom line. Why? Because you're responsible for the global. You're the one that goes outside the tent and deals with the outer world. And you, the only way you can figure out how to run your tent is in alignment with the rest of what's going on the outside. That's what men are supposed to do. And you're made that way. And gentlemen, it's true today. You're not going to get your life in line until you figure out the problems of the world. That's the reason you talk about it all the time. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to help you with the problems of the world. I'll give you some salve for your eyes. I'll give you a Christian world and life view. I'll give you the big picture, you guys, that you always want. I'll give it to you. But you have to come and buy it from me. You've been going over to the philosopher in the university and this institute and that institute and getting world experts and bringing them all in and talking about everything. And that's fine. The world has a lot of knowledge to offer. But where do they get their knowledge? If their knowledge is true, where did they get it? They got it from the Creator and the Potentate. And sometimes in spite of themselves. But that's where it all comes from if it's true. So if you want your life to be in line, get the world in line. 
in your mind with salve from Jesus Christ. Now you say, how am I going to get this stuff? I don't have money to buy gold and white clothes and salve. In Isaiah 55, which John the Revelator is very aware of, God says, come and buy without money and without cost. Come and trade with me. And all you have to do is ask. And you get the most precious gems this world ever produced. And you get the finest gold ever made available. And it doesn't cost you anything except your whole life. But nothing out of your back pocket. Come and just ask. And so he's counseling us, would you please turn from the rubbish and come to me? Okay, look in verse 19. The third thing he does is he corrects us. And he uses such a wonderful phrase here. Gentlemen, please let's remember this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find a wonderful description of this. That he corrects us with love and with truth. And basically, the writer of Hebrews says, when talking about this very principle, he says, any of you who have had good fathers, you know they corrected you. And if you were not corrected, you know you were a bastard. That's basically what the text is saying. You're corrected. If you're corrected, you're loved. If you're not, you're, you're a bastard. And so, I don't want to be a bastard. I want to be a real son. So I'm going to receive correction. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, that correction and discipline is not pleasant at the time. But it leads to something very good, a harvest of peace and righteousness and joy. And you all know as well as I do, you can see it, you've lived long enough to see the generations. Kids who come up and they've been poorly disciplined, and what do they turn out to be as adults? Usually poorly disciplined, self-absorbed. Discipline given to a child is a loving thing. And I want to say in this self-absorbed world, what's happening is it's not only that wealth is anesthetizing us, it's doing the same thing to our children. And when you give your car, these fancy cars to your kids way ahead of the time they should have them, or when you're giving them so much money, they're swimming in it and don't know what to do with it, you are putting them to sleep oftentimes. Not always, but usually it's done thoughtlessly and without concern for a kid's welfare. And there ought to be a discipline in the way that you do this kind of thing so that you do not corrupt your own children. And usually what has happened is the man himself is being corrupted, and so he doesn't even notice that he's corrupting somebody else. So be very careful in how you do this. And you want to be sure that there's a discipline in your life regardless of the kind of income you have available to you, there's a discipline there and that you're open to rebuke and being strengthened rather than just spending on yourself everything you can do or spending everything on your children. I noticed the generation before mine that came through the Depression, they, 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 many of them lived very honorable and thoughtful lives with their money. But those who didn't usually fell off one side or the other. They were either so doggone cheap out of fear that nobody wanted to be with them. Or on the other hand, they were trying to make up for all their deprivations in their childhood and poured out all these things on their own children, thinking, well, this will be the solution. I don't want them to go through what I went through. But there's a thoughtful discipline, and every father who loves his child will do this. Now, whether you love your children or not, whether I love mine or not, God loves His children. And He's saying to us, look, I've given you some very strong words, and I realize that. I've given you a diagnosis that's in your face. And I've told you that your wealth is putting you to sleep, and I hate what you're doing. It's pretty strong to say that to your children. But he's saying, look, I'm the faithful and true witness. I know what's going on with you, and I love you. And I'm doing this because I'm trying to recover you. And it's kind of like dealing with an alcoholic. If an alcoholic continues to resist, and some of you have done that, 
and you look back on it now, you're in recovery, you look back on it now, and there was one or two who were willing to come up to you and say, friend, you've got a huge problem, and I'm on your case, and I'm not going to get out of your face until you get treatment. And they gave you your airplane ticket and put you on there, and you went. Now, that's not true with every alcoholic, but somebody stuck with you. And in the moment, you got so ticked off at them, you thought that was your worst enemy on the face of the earth. And some of you, when you were teenagers, remember saying to your dad, I hate you! You didn't say it to him. You said it behind his back. Because he ticked you off. And sometimes the Lord ticks you off. But if your father loved you a smidgen, God loves you an ocean. And whatever he does when he confronts you is to get you to have fellowship with you, to love you. So He's counseling you and He's correcting you because He loves you. And don't ever forget it. So He speaks very strong words to His church so that He can get our attention. Fourthly, notice that He pleads with us. And I suppose this is the heart of the whole passage. First of all, He tells us He's still with us. Here I am. Your behavior stinks, makes me want to throw up. Behold, here I am. (laughs) Does that make sense? If, if I think you stink and you, your behavior nauseates me, I'm probably not going to hang around. You're probably not going to hang around. But Jesus does. And here's the proof of His love. That the very thing that makes Him sick, He'll stay there and continue to be sick. Rather than believe you. What love? And I just ask you, gentlemen, do you have anybody in your life who loves you like this? And whether you know the answer or not, the answer is no, you don't. You don't have anybody like this. You need to know this one. Because no matter what you do against Him, He's never leaving you. He's right there. And secondly, He makes Himself available. He's not just there. He's standing at the door. The language here suggests this. He's leaning in on the door. Think of this. He has not left you. You've closed the door on Him. And you've decided to go the wealth route and the prestige route and the popularity route. You've closed the door. He's sitting there leaning against the door, hanging around waiting for you. Thirdly, He makes His presence known. He knocks. Now, if you were were a good theologian, you already knew He was there. But just in case you didn't know, He's leaning against the door. He's right there and He's knocking on it. He's asking for you to open the door. He's pleading with you. Now, gentlemen, I don't know what your vision of Jesus Christ is. But we've already been through this in Revelation chapter 1. You know who Jesus Christ is. He is the great, the only, the sovereign, the Lord. He rules over everything. He disposes everything as He pleases according to His own pleasure because His pleasure is perfect holiness. But He's putting up with us. (laughs) This is absolutely remarkable. And He not only makes His presence known, He speaks to us. He has a word for us. If anyone hears my voice, what do you think His voice is? Imagine his voice. Is it so angry that you would not dare let him in because you're afraid you'd be destroyed? What kind of voice would it be that would be inviting you to open the door? Hey, Joe, you want to open the door? Bill, you want to open the door? Frank, you want to open the door? He's asking you to come in. It's, It's not an angry voice. It's a voice that's a welcoming voice. He's speaking to you. That's the amazing thing about those who have turned the other way. Jesus Christ is still speaking to us. And then He waits at the door. Now you know as well as I do, if you've got a salesman who's calling on you and you're either 
a little ticked off at him or you want to make him think that he's not the prime supplier or you're playing some other kind of manipulative game, you just, what do you do? You just make him wait. Cool his heels. And you know if you're on the other end of that, like I've been, the salesman with your heels cooling, you ain't so happy about it because you're getting a message. I don't want you. Or I'm putting you down. Or I'm going to show you who's boss. Or some other sort of thing. There's a little game that's being played there, isn't there? Would you please notice that Jesus Christ is waiting? And He's the King. It's truly remarkable. Sixthly, notice that not only does He is He still with us and make Himself available and make His presence known and speaks to us and waits for us, He actually comes to us. He says, I will come in. If you open that door, I will come in. Come in to what? Come in to destroy you. (laughs) No. Come in to vomit you. No. Come in to fellowship with you. He will eat with us and invite us to eat at His table. Look, in in the Mideastern world, if you sit down at table with someone, it's like having a covenant with them. You pledge your brotherhood when you eat together. So you don't eat with your enemies. That would be hypocrisy, to eat with your enemies. Jesus is saying this knowing exactly how He's being interpreted. If you open that door, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep your hypocrisy, no matter what kind of games you've played, no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, you can't name a sin that's too big for Him that's more disgusting than the sin here in this text. That's the sin of hypocrisy. He says no matter what you've done, you just open that door. I'm leaning on it. I'm knocking on it. I'm talking to you. I'm waiting for you. You open that door and I'm going to come in. I'm not just going to come into your house. I'm going to seal a covenant with you. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a deal with you that you cannot turn down. Just open the door, would you? And invite me in. Gentlemen, this is not real simple. You don't have to be a Ph.D. to get this stuff. This is down here for kindergartners and below. And you all and I have the intelligence of kindergartners and beyond. So it's real simple. No matter what you've done, if you want meaning in your life, if you want purpose in your life, if you want power in your life, if you want the potentate in your life, all you've got to do is ask Him in and He'll come. He's never ever turned down one person and He never will because He promises He won't. And it doesn't matter how detestable your behavior has been. Let me put it another way. It doesn't matter how detestable you are. <laughs> You're not detestable to Him. He loves the repentant, lukewarm. So just let Him in. And He'll he'll clean you up. You don't have to get cleaned up to let Him in. Jesus wasn't standing at the door and saying, now look, you get this room cleaned up and change your attitude and I'll come in. And He just said, open the door. And I'll come in and clean up the mess. And I'll help you with your attitude. And I'll give you a direction in life. Now lastly, The Lord lifts up the repentant lukewarm. This is amazing. Look at verse 21. He says, To him who overcomes, that is, overcomes his apathy and his indifference, his carelessness, his self-absorption, whoever overcomes all that, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. (laughs) Look at this. Jesus is saying, I overcame the powers of evil that were perpetrated against me by the evil one himself. And look what the Father has done. You saw me in Revelation chapter 1. Look what He did for me. He made me an absolutely radiant being. He enthroned me at His right hand. He gave me authority over the entire universe. He gave me His throne. 
And look what Jesus is saying to you. And I, I want to say, we're just a bunch of little nitwits here. We're just a bunch of punks. And look what He's saying to us. I'll give you my throne. Can you turn this down? Can you live for anything else? Look what you're, look what you're fighting over. The little coins, you know, and then making the little mud pies and playing the little men games, the little boy games. Look at what we're doing. And look what He's offering. And He's saying, look, if you'll overcome all this foolishness, all this self-absorption, if you'll look to Me and invite Me in your life, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. I'm going to give you real money. I'm going to give you a real kingdom to rule over that never ends. And you're going to rule with Me. Gentlemen, I don't know how anybody here can turn that deal down. And sure, we're going to walk out of here, and before this day is over, every single person here is going to do something hypocritical. But there's a thing called repentance. He says, be earnest and repent. And that means just set your goal on Christ and express your sorrow and be convicted of your sin and turn from it. Every time it happens to you, just keep turning back to Him and you're going to get a throne. And Laodicea, nor Memphis, Tennessee, can compare to it. Colonel Elmer Follis, where are you? Raise your hand. Colonel, thank you for this. This is a piece of marble from a column in Laodicea. They didn't arrest you for that? <laughs> and I want you to notice, it's broken. That's what's left. If you go to Laodicea, wealthy city. Beautiful marble. I'm sure that was quite a column, and I'm sure it held up quite a building. And I'm sure there were quite a number of them. It's gone. And it's just a picture of what happens to the lukewarm who don't listen. And that's the reason the last verse says, He who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to be a faithful and true witness. This ruler over all that You have created, whom You have exalted to be King of kings and Lord of lords, and who invites us to rule with Him, we thank You that we have such a clear message from Him about our lives. And pray that You'll guard us from being fooled by the riches of this world and by the salves that are offered us and the solutions that are offered us. Give us a holy resistance to any substitute, any counterfeit to the real thing. And enable each one of us, Lord Jesus Christ, to open that door upon which you're knocking again this morning and to let you in and to have table fellowship with you and enjoy your presence and increasingly become like you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great patience. Thank you that we still live and breathe and have life on this earth so that we can make that decision about the door on which you're knocking. And we pray that as long as we live on this earth, we will always open the latch and let you in. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for all that you've said to your churches and what you're saying to your church today. And we pray that those of us who have ears will truly hear you. For your great sake, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.